Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, living the dream here in Macomb, Illinois. And today we are talking about a an interesting topic, and it might feel like you know something you want, something new you might want to try. We're going to talk a little bit about different, maybe some unique or newer types of vegetable crops, and also get into what should we be thinking about with it being almost pretty much the middle of summer now and fall is right around the corner which is one of my favorite gardening seasons and i can't do this alone so as always we do have katie parker local foods educator in quincy illinois hello katie hey chris and of course we have ken johnson horticulture educator in jacksonville illinois hey ken hello chris and katie our special guest for today uh is going to help us weed through the maze of kind of these newer crops that are out there, these new vegetable crops, and also talk a little bit about fall gardening and answer your home gardening questions. We have Grant McCarty, local foods educator. Hello, Grant. Hello. So Grant, can you uh, tell everyone, first off, where are you right now in in the world, in Illinois? I am in Northern Illinois, so I'm kind of in the Rockford area. Being in Northern Illinois, I, I know we kind of experience the seasons a little bit differently when we go from down Southern Illinois all the way up to Northern Illinois. Um, you know, are you are you kind of in full swing in terms of the the gardening season with uh, like warm season stuff, tomatoes and peppers, things like that? Yeah, we pretty much are. Um, you know, we we tend to see tomatoes go out the last week of May, and we also do direct seeded of the squash family that same week as well. Um, and then usually our first our first fall frost will come in around mid-October. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, wh- where is your passion? You know, we, we always are curious on the, on the podcast here why people choose the field that they go into. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Ken has a thing for insects. And so, you know, that kind of drove him or led him to the horticulture world. So Grant, tell, tell us a little bit about like, you know, what, why you chose the career that you're in as a local foods educator with U of I Extension? Did you have uh, an inspiration or was it just something that you always sort of like plants, like being outside? Yeah, what a good question, Chris. I get this a lot, but I don't get to <laughs> talk too much about it sometimes. Um, you can elaborate as much as you want. Yeah, yeah. How, how long do we have? Um, um, as long as people care to listen, you know, so right? hey, I have all day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Tennessee um, and spent most of my childhood uh, working with my grandparents on their farm. Um, and so they were basically homesteaders and they grew lots of different fruits and vegetables. And uh, they had retired early. And so I thought they were farmers, but in fact, they were professors. Uh, and I didn't realize that until probably, you know, at an age I should have known better. Um, so I spent most summers helping them grow tomatoes and peppers and beans, and they had 65 apple trees that I helped out with. And so that kind of childhood experience kind of laid the foundation for extension work and for kind of working in this field of fruit and vegetables. Um, following, you know, getting an undergraduate and finally going to graduate school um, at Tennessee, I spent a couple of years there working in organic research and production and helping a lot with the state extension specialist for Tennessee, and that was Lockie. 
And that started to give me a greater idea about, you know, where I could fuse this idea of liking to work with people and interacting with people and also working in agriculture. And that's kind of where the extension has has always kind of played a big role in really what I see as far as what I like most about this work is that, yes, I want to have some alone time and work in my tomatoes, but I also want to talk to someone. Uh, and so that's where they kind of all, all blend together. Um, I think what I get known for a lot of times with University of Illinois Extension, where I've been since 2013, is really in soil science. That's really where a lot of my work is done and where I offer a lot of advice to folks is thinking about your soil, how could it be better, what are some limitations that you might have, and looking at it from both the backyard perspective as well as a full-scale commercial approach to it is really where it, it kind of lies in it. Um, the last five years, it's been a lot of apple tree pruning, and that's where I do a lot of work in Northern Illinois on. And the benefit there is that that has carried over from childhood, where I was working in my grandparents' orchard, and now I show photos of my grandparents' trees in my extension programming every single year. Well, that's really cool how that carried through um, with your grandparents, uh, you know, talking about their... How many, did you say 80-some apple trees on their farm? We're about 65. 65, okay. And then, yeah, now you're you're teaching that stuff to um, you know, background, backyard growers, but but also, and this is something that we've never really really gotten into much on this podcast, but but both you and Katie, you are on the local foods team. So, well, yes, you, you, you can and do answer questions for, for homeowners, home gardeners, you focus a lot of your time on commercial production, so folks who grow the stuff for sale. Is that something your grandparents did? Were they, with their homestead, did they sell anything, or was it all for their own consumption? It was all for their own consumption. So, yeah, they, they, there never was that, but they were in that weird scale where it's like, do we need 100 tomato plants for two people? You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, <laughs> I think we're 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 dancing. We're not selling this stuff, and yet we're at a commercial scale at this point. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, you know, the the team that Katie and I work on works a lot with commercial growers, and so especially during the growing season, we are somewhat on call a lot of times when it comes to insects and disease and just general production questions that people have. Um, you know, it's very common that I get a call or an email and all of a sudden I, I kind of have to drop everything for the day in order to figure out what solution we can find for, um, you know, powdery mildew on a melon crop or an outbreak of an insect problem that is someone's having that, yes, the homeowner may be dealing with this on their 10 tomato plants, but you know, someone else down the road is dealing with this on 200 or 300, and we need to figure out a solution pretty quickly in order for that crop to be salvageable for the season. So you, you mentioned apple trees um, up in Northern Illinois. Would you say, is that like the one of the more common crops that you get called out on, or are there some pretty large farms of apples or other specialty crops up in Northern Illinois? That you deal with? Apples, yeah, apples tend to be one of the main ones. Um, you know, we, we see folks that have apple, an apple crop uh, operation will also have maybe small fruits to start their season off with in June. Um, they then will go into apples in late August and September, and then there'll be that over, 
overlap with uh, pumpkins and so forth in the fall. So that's that's kind of, you know, if you think of any kind of small farm or orchard that's open to the public, they'll typically have all parts of those. We don't see as much strawberry production as we used to just due to kind of our, our winters. And certainly we do not suggest peaches or stone fruit on a commercial scale because it just doesn't work well in Northern Illinois. Um, but as far as, you know, our, kind of our orchard operations, they tend to have all of those kind of crops together. And Grant, I remember we were at a meeting, oh, it, it must have been, it was years ago, I'm trying to think back when I, I planted my hops, but but you really, I mean, I was, I was, I was I'm basically my background is in landscaping and I'm trying to learn about vegetables and, and fruit production. And so you've, you've really, we've had conversations that various meetings and you turned me on to these unique crops, you know, and, and after chatting with you, I started growing hops uh, at the extension office. And actually we had really good production for several years. And, um, you know, we, we don't sell them, but we just give away the hops. And actually our hops was, um, was in a brew that won the, I think it was the new, new Mexico, a state homebrew award. Um, wow. Yeah, and they named the beer um, Max Smash after Macomb because uh, that's wow. where the hops came from. <laughs> and so I that I mean that came from like conversations with you. Um, it, but you have you dive into all different types of like different or unique crops. Uh, you experiment with different cultivars that are new to the market. Um, let, tell us a little bit about what are you growing, I suppose, right now, you know, that maybe some people might find interesting and maybe I can adopt in my garden and learn to grow myself. So, yeah, I mean, a part of, especially in the local foods realm, is that we get questions all the time about weird crops or unusual crops, you know, and, and asking, you know, can this grow here? Will it grow here? You know, what are some challenges that, you know, I might be facing? So I, I try to, from, you know, my own personal experience, um, cut my teeth, if you will, and, and figure out if this is something that could work. And so for this season, especially, this is my first season in a new home, uh, I decided to kind of work and look at some different things that we've gotten questions about before. One of the main ones that I wanted to look at was this winter squash variety called candy roaster and you also hear it called pink banana um, and it's one that you know it is a pretty massive winter squash and the thing about it is that as i understand it the sugars become much more concentrated after four to five months so you're still going to be harvesting it as you would any other winter squash but if you allow for it to actually be in storage for a little bit longer you should actually have a much sweeter squash. Um, I've not tried it myself. You know, this is still the first season. It's a very massive plant. Um, you know, it still is six, eight feet in its vine length. Um, but trying both of those varieties to kind of see how they do. Uh, one of the other ones we're looking at, you know, from my family is, is Magic Molly, which is a fingerling uh, potato that's purple and bluish in its color. And I'm also growing Huckleberry Gold. One of the things that's really nice about Huckleberry Gold is that, as I understand it, it does have part of it is the, that Yukon Gold cultivar. Then they have also um, crossed it with a different one that actually lowers the glycemic index, which, yet again, I'm a grower. I'm not a nutritionist. 
but I understand that this affects the sugar content and it can actually help those that are trying to, I guess, watch their sugar intake. Um, and so both of them are growing in an area underneath pine trees that has a really high organic matter, so I'm going to see how it does. I've also got both of them growing in uh, grow bags to see if there's any <laughs> differences there. Um, you know, along with that, I'm experimenting with, with globe artichokes this season. I had to start them as, from seed because you can't commonly find them. They are doing okay. I don't know if I'm going to actually get any artichokes off of it. There is, because of the zone we're in, we have to treat it as an annual and not a perennial. And you have to be quite uh, meticulous when it comes to growing it because it has to have a period where it dips under a certain temperature. I believe it's about 40 degree, temp 40 degree nighttime temperature for an extended period of time in order to kind of trigger the artichoke plant to develop those artichokes. And I think because of my spring, it did not, it fluctuated too much in those temperatures. Um, so we'll see. I, I, it looks pretty. I don't think we're getting artichokes this year, though. Uh, I'm also doing Thai and Chinese eggplant. Uh, both are very small eggplant and can do pretty well in containers. So I've got them in containers. I also have them in some raised beds I built this season. Um, and then usually I'm always just trying to do a different mixture of just different crops. And so it's the blue pumpkins, the jaradels, which are just a beautiful blue pumpkin that most people use as this but it's a great cooking pumpkin, um, along with baby bear, very tiny pumpkins, and just different, different things. So it's kind of a mixture of different cultivars, those that I usually have grown and those that I haven't grown previously. Um, I'm growing Cherokee Purple right now in containers to see how they perform. I've never done that before, even though I've grown Cherokee Purple pretty much every season. When you going back to Globe Artichoke, I remember reading more about that and that is a very long season crop right and that, that's what i was hearing as you're describing that is that correct that's what i'm understanding too um i started the seeds mid-february mm -hmm. uh and then i think it was transplanted probably mid-april um i think was when it is and i i just was able to get about five of them out um with it and and also when you say winter squash and going back to candy roaster, um, let's clarify for listeners what like what is a winter squash? Um, you know, is that a pumpkin? Is that a, like a spaghetti squash? What are we thinking of the of that when we're we're talking about winter squash? Yeah, so that winter squash denotion is going to be something where the outer uh, outer coating will will harden, you know, and so it's going to allow for that storage capability. In this situation with both candy roaster and pink banana, we're really looking at probably a. Uh, almost like a butternut squash, if you will, as far as what that flavor and as far as what its use should be. So it won't have that pumpkin type, um, uh, pumpkin type situation where you might be carving it or something like that. This would be purposely cooking, very similar to that butternut squash. I'll, I'll just add also, you mentioned the, the blue pumpkin variety is a, a great for cooking. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It's, I, I mean, the way, we got it. One of our our district foresters, she grows pumpkins down here, and she dropped off a bunch of pumpkins at the extension office. And one of them was a blue pumpkin. She said, "Just stick this in the oven. Don't do anything to it. Just put it in the oven, and then you'll just you'll carve everything out. And you can make pie with it." And 
that's the most pumpkin-ish pie I've ever had, and it was delicious. Yeah, I, it makes me so sad to see this display when I when I see yes. it on doorsteps. It's like you have 10, 12 cups of good pumpkin in there, and you're it's at your door. <laughs> Some of them are really good stacking pumpkins. What can we say? <laughs> I know, I know. Say, so, also, I've grown magic Molly um, in the past, and I'm actually growing it this year too. And it, like for grow bags, my experience with potatoes is that you don't get very good yields. At least for me, I think it just they dry out so fast. So I don't know if you're going to see that, but that's one thing I've noticed when growing potatoes in those grow bags. They just it almost got to the point where I had to water two, if not three times a day, yeah, to keep those from I'm, really drying out. That's what I'm noticing too, Ken. Did you um, did you kind of unroll it as it got taller too and layer it? No, I just I kind of just filled it up and and put the uh, the seed potato in there and oh gotcha and, and kind of let it do its thing and. So I think the ones I've grown in bags, I didn't get nearly as much production compared to the stuff I grew in the ground, but the bags are definitely a lot easier to harvest. Yeah, I think, and I agree. It's kind of one of those things to be like, well, I had extra seed potatoes. Let's see what happens. Um, and I, I, I am trying to you know, somewhat add, so each week I'm trying to put some worm castings in there. I'm trying to kind of get the soil biology to help a little bit, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's just impossible to really replicate that soil experience above ground for some of the ones that really would thrive underground. I have noticed that with sweet potatoes growing in ground, you get these big, big uh, tuberous roots. But when you put them in a, I had them in a fabric container, they were, were I would call them fingerling sweet potatoes, even though they're not mm. potatoes, sweet potatoes, two different species. But the thing about the in-ground sweet potatoes is I had a lot of vole damage, but the ones in the container, they were not bothered at all. Grant, where do you like to get your seed for these more unique varieties? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I kind of, what I, ha- what I had to do, especially this year, due to the spring rush of seeds, uh, was to... I use the there's a Google a Google type search engine for seeds called pickacarrot.com, um, and so it allows you to enter in different kind of cultivars you might be looking at, and then it will return with results from a number of different companies. Um, so that I, that's what I actually had to do with Candy Roaster and Pink Banana, as those were two that commonly I would find at say uh, Baker Creek or at um, probably even at Seed Savers, and yet this year I had to go with a different um, different company out in the Northwest uh, that I hadn't purchased from previously, but seemed to have a, a pretty good germination rate and seemed to work pretty well for it. Um, some of the other ones, you know, I'll try to uh, kind of look around and kind of see what some of my other growers purchase theirs from. Um, I also tend to, if I'm thinking of some new cultivars or varieties, I look at some of the research coming out of University of Wisconsin with um, their um, Seed Kitchen Collaborative. Uh, they have a really good program um, that tries different cultivars and varieties. And just with me being so close to the border uh, of Wisconsin, uh, it helps me out quite a bit to see what I might expect. I love fall gardening. It's one of my favorite times to garden. If someone is going to be moving on into the fall now, what tips can you give them? What resources would you point them to for a fall vegetable garden? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and the thing I, I think you bring up a great point, Chris, because it's it's on the radar. Like we're only a couple weeks <laughs> away from starting, you know, some of these direct seated ones. I do like the guy from Kelly Alsep with the uh, the timeline. She has a calendar. I think she made on her. Um, I believe it's on her blog still from this past spring, and that is one that's really nice because it includes all parts of our state um, when it comes to growing. The other thing I would mention is like I would go ahead and start thinking about what could be direct seeded and what needs to be started as a transplant because you may find that you know if my broccoli plants need to go out say the end of august i should go ahead and start you know doing some indoor transplanting pretty soon one of the questions we get a lot and i have a lot of people ask about in master gardener trainings and just sometimes even interacting with them uh, is getting garlic i think that's one of the most common questions is that people get into September and they're ready and they want to grow garlic and then they cannot find garlic seed anywhere. So this is a great time that if you know of, you go to farmer's markets, you know farmer's market growers, getting some garlic from them, those those bulbs and storing them back can be the garlic that you plant this fall. And it also allows you to cook with it so you can actually see what the flavor is like and if you, if you want that with it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, doing an inventory, kind of start looking around right now and, you know, the, the seeds are still there is what I've noticed at some of the home and garden centers. But you may find that that place that you ordered your summer crops from doesn't do fall crops. I know that's a common, a common occurrence up here in Northern Illinois is that it's a lot of summer crops. It's not any fall crops whatsoever. And, and we can link to Kelly's guide uh, in the show notes below. Um, Grant, in, in terms of, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll back up a little bit too. I, I was thinking about, about garlic and that's probably one of my favorite crops to grow because it's so easy to grow. Um, and, and one of my favorites is, is magic. In, in, in our area, um, it, I guess I would say from northern to southern Illinois, you know, what type of garlic should we be growing? Yeah, we still recommend the hardneck. Um, you know, that hardneck variety just performs very well for us, especially in our, our planting zone 5B, uh, at least where I'm at. Um, I have some growers that do well with some of the softnecks, but I think for consistency's purposes, the hardneck is, is the, the one to go towards. And usually the cloves are much bigger on them as well. And for new garlic growers, there is a direct correlation in those garlic cloves. So factoring that in is crucial. Yeah, and it is about, I mean, I know some growers around us have harvested garlic and ours at the extension office. I would say they're, they're ready to go. I've, I pulled one out of the ground already and it was just huge. I mean, you know, fist size. And um, I think it was a good year, but we'll find out because we seem to have a lot of good things going for us this year at least. Yeah, and that's happening up in the north too. Things are, are kind of as expected <laughs> in, yeah. in the vegetables this season. Um, you know, last summer we had record rains in June and this June was a very normal period of, of, of rainfall. Um, so, you know, the, the winter was a little bit longer than we expected, but um, certainly right now things seem to be going on as scheduled. I've harvested some of my garlic, and I think for some of it, I waited a little too long. 
because the bulbs are starting to kind of the break apart. So make sure you don't want to wait too long if you've got that to harvest that. Well, thank you, Grant, very much for that awesome information on, on unique crops, different crops. And Grant, you've been putting out some videos, right, on on YouTube. Is that correct? Yes, I have been. So, yeah, I, I've, we did some webinars. So you'll find webinars from this past spring are up on YouTube. But each week we're trying to do a different video of different um, different crops I'm growing in the backyard. So, you know, we've had tomato, trellising. This week is Japanese beetles. Um, so every week we're trying to do something different. And for folks to find that, you know, you can follow along with our Facebook page at Northwest Illinois Local Foods. Um, and get updates on, you know, what the Candy Roaster and Peak Banana Squash are doing this season, along with some of the other videos that we have. Coming up, we do have a couple questions from homeowners that were submitted from people around Illinois. So, Katie, we'll let you take it away. Yeah, so we had a question from Knox County, and it looks like something is eating their cucumbers. Uh, so we have some photos that we'll attach below uh, the podcast for those to look at. Yeah, so, you know, in first glance, it looked like rabbit damage. Um, but what did you all think about it? I was thinking rabbit or maybe they have groundhogs or some kind of mammal, it looks like, because the entire leaves are missing. Yeah, because I don't think it would be any, any insect, right, Ken? I just don't see any symptom of that. No, not especially not with almost fully... I would assume probably full-size leaves. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, the number of missing and, and just completely missing, I wouldn't think it's any kind of insect. I would, I would look at more a uh, some kind of four-legged animal. And that was my, yeah, that was my conclusion. And I've had, you know, the rabbits have gone after the okra this year on, in my backyard, much to my surprise. Um, <laughs> and especially so early on, that that would be my guess would be it's a rabbit. I was thinking that too, and I can't remember. So the the tips of the stems looked a little tattered, a little ragged, and I, I was taught this. It might have even been Peggy Doty, who was our guest last week, who taught me this. The 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 signs of damage that a deer versus rabbit leave a deer. I might have this backwards, so folks, you might need to look this up. Um, a deer, the incisors of a deer, they the way they come down is they create a clean cut. Or as mm-hmm. a rabbit cr- creates a ragged cut. Um, so I was thinking that's rabbit as well. That's the other way around. Yeah, yeah rabbit. Right. So rabbit might clean be, cut. Okay, so deer. More <laughs> <laughs> <Somewhere> jagged. <laughs> or um, yeah, or some type of a four-legged mammal. Yeah, so I mean, I would say you know if the ability for exclusion would would be an approach, something where it's maybe a two-foot chicken wire, an inch or smaller. Uh, as far as the the mesh opening, um, and then potentially that could be buried three to six in, inches deep um, in the soil. Uh, but that would just be one one suggestion, depending on what they're growing. Uh, our next question is from McDonough County. Um, so they want to know if they should harvest their hops now. Um, some cones are ready, some are not. Uh, they seem really early this year compared to previous years. Yeah, that seems very early. Um, you know, typically, you know, we start to see the cone formation really after that that summer solstice towards the end of June, and harvest tends to be in mid-August or kind of towards the end of August. So, to me, I find this to be kind of unusual for them to to be ready to be harvested. Um, you know, a lot of times this is that uh, 
if it's ready to go, they would certainly notice a lot of the lupulin glands, that kind of yellow type of um, uh, material that's coming off of the cones. They would also be a little bit squishy uh, to the touch. So you kind of squish them and then they should bounce back and that would be a sign. But certainly I'd be a little bit, um, a little bit cautious uh, because this does sound very early for them. It may also depend greatly on what that cultivar and variety is that they're growing too. Chris, would you add anything else to that? Um, so I think they're growing Cascade. Um, okay. This might have been what I've seen in the past is is we with this particular type. There have been been a few times where the cones, you know, you have a few of those lower cones that just seem to just be ready about this time of year, but usually it's never enough to to warrant harvesting it's it's usually yeah. a better idea to just hold off later into august um to start picking because uh, it, you know you you would harvest maybe a handful right now and that just seems seems like you would be able to utilize that in a like a homebrew and depending on the age of that hot plant too you know i think there would be some benefit you know if it was less than you know three years old there would probably be some benefit to that rhizome to keep those those hops on for a little bit longer. Our next question is from from Warren County, um, and so they want to know if there's anything organic that they can spray on their blueberries to stop both the Japanese beetles and here they say the worms in the fruit. And I'm guessing the worms they're talking about spotted wing Drosophila. So they're looking for an organic option for those two pests. So Pyganic might be an option. The only issue with Pyganic is that it can be pretty expensive and you may run into that you're having to apply this more than once. Um, neem oil could be utilized on Japanese beetles. I'm unaware of its impact on spotted wing Drosophila. Um, those might be the, the, the main two ones, but they may not fully address um, both of those insects. Uh, it, it would just depend on it. I mean, typically with, with some of these, especially with depending on how many blueberry plants, looking at a very fine netting might be beneficial for both insects, um, but it would highly depend uh, on the situation. So I was looking before the show and, and looking at um, some different options and um, some stuff from Michigan State kind of lists um, azadactrin neem is kind of poor effectiveness for spotted wing mm -hmm. Um One thing they recommend is for blueberries and stuff is going out um, and picking every day. Um, they found that if you pick every day, you have a lot lower percent infestation compared to if you wait for three days. So just looking at their chart, um, if you pick every day, um, their average infestation per kilogram, you got like 20% um, of the, the fruit have 20% of that has um, eggs in it, like 10, 15% has undetectable larva, and there's no detectable larva if you pick every day. If you wait to three days, you're getting up over 50% of the fruit has eggs in it, and 70, 80% have um, larva in it. So going out and picking frequently can help kind of reduce some of that incidence of that spotted wing drosophila in your fruit too. Yeah, and having a good and bad bucket as well, you know, if you're picking any of the bad fruit and throwing it away, you don't want to compost that that bad fruit because the larva can still be in there. And picking up dropped fruit off the ground so they can't develop and yeah, yep, good there was sanitation. There a study last week that came out that was actually um, hanging up hummingbird feeders in your, your, your uh, small fruit. 
um, as the hummingbirds could actually, there is some data to show that they suppress the spotted wing drosophila population. Seems like a really good idea. I will I'll find the link for, for that. And, and if you have spotted wing drosophila larvae in your uh, blueberries, raspberries, grapes, whatever, then you just cut out the chicken that you were going to eat that night because you've already had your protein for that day. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Doesn't hurt you. You eat insects all the time. You just don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) This will be the next TikTok uh, video. (laughs) (laughs) So we have another question, Grant, from Peoria County, and they are wanting to know, how do you know when to harvest your potatoes? So typically with the potatoes, you're going to see that the um, the plant itself will start to will start to die, and that's a pretty good sign that you're getting pretty close to potato harvest. Your potato plant would also have flowered. Uh, my potatoes just flowered uh, two weeks ago, so now it's concentrating on developing the potatoes underground. Um, so I would still say, you know, look towards the plant to kind of start to die off, but you don't want it to be too too dead <laughs> before you actually harvest uh, your potatoes. All right, this next question is from Scott County. Um, it's my first year growing zucchini. How do I know when they are ready to be picked? So for this one, I would, depending on the type of zucchini that you're growing, look towards six to eight inches to start off with. I, I think that that's going to be a pretty good size zucchini. That'll be quite enough uh, to, to cook with. Uh, once they get really massive, you may find that the quality is not as good. Really massive being, you know, if you're looking at a 12 inch zucchini, you just may find it's just not good quality. So I would start with six to eight. But as always happens when you grow zucchini, you all of a sudden find that you forgot a zucchini. And they're still edible at, you know, 12 to 14 inches. Um, but you may not find the quality as good is as good as they are. Uh, currently and be mindful of looking at them you know every every other day i would say um i've got zucchini that's almost ready to be harvested but it's only at about four inches so i'm kind of watching it in the next couple of days and that would go for most of our summer squash right kind of that six to eight inches six to eight inch range like your crook neck and all that stuff too right right and if you're grant's neighbor Pretty soon you're going to be getting zucchini thrown into your front window. So <laughs> We're already talking it up. So. <laughs> well, Grant, we do have one more question. This one comes from uh, Adams County. And they want to know um, about using black plastic mulch. And they, they actually sent me a, a, a photograph of uh, some tomatoes that they're growing. And they're on black plastic mulch, drip irrigated. Uh, but they, it looks like septoria leaf spot, um, telltale signs of it, you know, but we know it's some type of a foliar disease. Uh, you know, they're curious, they've done everything right in terms of sanitation, crop rotation, but they reuse their black plastic year after year. And they want to know, are they picking that pathogen up or some pathogen up by reusing that plastic every year? I mean, it, it, it could be possible, um, I think the other thing that they, you know, would want to also examine is, is if they were using any, um, depending on how they trellis their tomatoes, if they had used cages or if they had used stakes, if those had not been cleaned properly, that could have been also what's kind of carrying it over too. Um, you know, just anything that's coming in contact with that soil, 
we just get really concerned with. And it, you know, that's that path that pathogen world is sometimes unpredictable um, in how things how things stay. But I, I don't know fully. Um, what what are other people's thoughts? So some of the the foliar diseases can overwinter. A lot of times on crop to reap, but some of them can also do in the soil. So if they you know they had a lot of soil and stuff on that um, plastic. There's there is always that potential that it could have survived in that and and splashed up on the plants. But I would agree with if your staking material, if if you had a lot of disease and you're reusing that, there's the potential for that to be on there as well. Basically, it is yes, it's possible, and and that's what it feels like every time you you answer some of these questions. <laughs> you know, you're like, well. You know, typically you don't see that, but you can never say, like, this is impossible when it comes to nature. I mean, there's always exceptions to these to these things that we research and that we look into. And, you know, it's that's just the way of, of growing things in this world. Mm-hmm. Nature always finds a way. Uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm said it best. <laughs> I, he, I wish he was my major professor for master's degree. That would have been interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is your major <laughs> professor. <laughs> uh, Grant, is there anything you want to plug before we finish up here? Uh, yeah, you know we we are. Um, you can find us on Facebook. <laughs> okay. Northwest Illinois Local Foods um, is the best way to approach us. We will probably be revisiting webinars uh, this upcoming August and in the fall. Um, but as of yet, don't have anything scheduled. Well, Grant, that was. A lot of fantastic information. I have been writing notes in my notebook about crops to try. Uh, you know, probably won't get to them this year, but definitely want to try them next year. Um, so, thank you very much, Grant, for being on the show today and, and just sharing your your knowledge and experience with us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Was more than happy to to be a part of it. So, I, I've I've seen the podcast, and uh, yeah, this is great. And again, I've folks, if... I've not seen it. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I have been threatening, though, to, to make this a video chat. So <laughs> but I, I'm the one who probably would suffer the most. I don't know what a brush or a comb look like right now. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> well, folks, uh, if you want to check out what Grant has been up to, again, you can go to Facebook. That's uh, Northwest Illinois Local Foods. Uh, and see what Grant has been working on this summer and things coming up in the future. And as always, of course, thank you, Ken and Katie, for being on the show today and, and lending your time and expertise. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Grant. And of course, folks, there are, it will be a bunch of information in our show notes, links to other resources that uh, we've talked about today. Um, please feel free to subscribe. Uh, more shows are coming here in the future. Uh, if you do have questions, you're more than welcome to contact Ken, Katie, or myself. Our emails are also, again, in the show notes. Uh, you're more than welcome to reach out to us. And, of course, listeners, thank you for, well, listening. And keep on growing.